hey, I'm Jono. Uh, I was, I was like out in the foyer and I was like, who stole youth group? What happened? And I couldn't work it out. But I remembered that our church has got a camp this weekend. And so there's like a dads and kids camp where teenagers as well, I guess. Lots of people have gone away for like a weekend away thing. So that's where everyone is. And so they'll be back next week. But for now, it's like we've got a super dense small youth group right here, which is awesome. It's fun to sit together, yeah? Feels less weird? I like it. That's good. Sky's a fan. All right. Um, anyway, hope you have a mad night. If it's your first time with us, um, hope you have a fantastic time. Now, the good news about Jesus, I reckon, is like Vegemite. All right, let me explain why. It divides people. So you either love it or you end up hating it. So you don't meet many people who are like passionate, diehard fans of peanut butter. You know what I mean? There's like peanut butter, I could give or take it. Strawberry jam, no one's freaking out over that but Vegemite will divide a room in two. And if you want to take it to the next level, a better example again is that Vegemite chocolate that Cadbury brought out. You guys remember that? I can see it on your faces. Some of you are like, oh, why'd they do that? It's like poop on a stick. But other people are like, it's like better than salted caramel. It's like this whole other thing. And so it completely divides people. Some people love it and others are just repulsed by it. Now, whether you like Vegemite chocolate or not, whether you hate it, it doesn't really actually matter, does it? It's kind of a trivial thing. But tonight, as we look at this part of the Bible, um, what we'll see is that the good news about Jesus, the message about Jesus, divides people in a much more significant way because people will either love it or they'll hate it. Um, Sometimes the gospel is received by people with tears of joy when they realise just how good it is. And other times, people... They're opposed to it with a furious hatred of what it says because it says some pretty heavy things about us. And so I take it that if you are a Christian here tonight, you're probably someone who's committed to telling people about Jesus because you see why it matters. This message about Jesus is actually a matter of eternal life or eternal death. And so that's a big deal. And so I take it that it really matters to you that people hear about Jesus. But what we're going to see tonight is that we will face opposition to Jesus when we start talking about him. That's the reaction that Jesus brings out in people. Now, in fact, just last week at youth, a whole bunch of people actually became Christians, and that's just the best news in the world. That's awesome. It's heaps good. Uh, And so I want to say there's nothing better than people getting a hold of that news. And so in the context of wanting people to to be able to hear about Jesus, uh, I want to ask the question, what will keep us going when we face opposition? What will keep us going? What will help us to keep going in spite of when things get hard? What's going to help us do that? This passage is going to help us with exactly that question. It's got some awesome stuff in it. So let's pray and then we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, the Bible, which you reveal yourself to us in. And we pray, Lord, that tonight we'd understand the things that this passage has to say. Please give us ears to hear it, and hearts that are obedient. Um, Please, Lord, help us to to be caught up with the gospel and what you're doing in the world. Amen. All right, first thing I want you guys to see in this passage that was just read to us by Jacob, not Jordan, uh, is this. The gospel will bring opposition. That's not actually a hard thing to see in this passage. It's right through there. Now, to give you the context of what's going on in chapter 17... Last week, we saw how Paul and some of his mates are on like a trip. So they're heading all over kind of 
the, the known world on a, bit of a, on a bit of a track telling people about Jesus, right? Uh, in verse 1, they arrive in a city called Thessalonica. Does anyone know where Thessalonica is? What country it's in? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Close. I, I can't see who's saying it, so I don't know if you've been funny or just a little bit off. But <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> who said Germany? I don't know who that was. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's in Macedonia, right? So it's just above Greece. Uh, they're, in the, they're in Macedonia. And as usual, they head to the Jewish synagogue, which is like a Jewish church. Okay, So they go to this Jewish church uh, and they start talking about Jesus there. And initially, things go pretty good. Look at verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks in a row for one day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And here's what he said. He said, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So initially he goes in there and there's a great response to this message about Jesus. Now he says that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that Jesus is the the saviour, the rescuer, right? He's saying Jesus is the one who's come to rescue us from our sin, bring us back to God. And in verse 4, there's an awesome response. Have a look at it, verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And so things are going pretty positive. People are hearing this message about Jesus as the saviour and they're like, oh, awesome, I'm in. But very quickly, look at verse 5. Opposition turns up. Look at verse 5. It says, But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Now, I love that verse because I just picture these like bad dudes. I don't know, they're wearing trench coats or whatever, trench coats or whatever, hanging out in like the marketplace. And he's like, I need a mob. Hey, who wants to be in a mob? And they're like, I'm pretty bad. I'll be in a mob. And they form this like this mob and they just get it going. They rent a crowd of bad guys from the marketplace and they just start causing trouble for people, right? Things start getting crazy. Now, this renter crowd, these dudes in trench coats in the marketplace, as I like to picture it, they must have known that Paul and Silas were staying with a Christian local guy named Jason and so they head to Jason's house. Look at the second half, verse 5. They rush to Jason's house. Sounds like they're in a hurry. In search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, this local Christian, um, uh, dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world and now they've come here. And Jason, <laughs> like Jason, what have you been doing? Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defi- they're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. <clears throat> and so there you get it. Jason's been singled out. They're like, Jason, what have you done? Um, and they give it to him. They accuse him of a whole bunch of stuff. Now, one thing I want you guys to notice, first of all, is that the opposition that we're talking about here in this passage is opposition that's on, it's on false grounds. It's not... It's not true stuff. Did you see how they were twisting the truth? They say that these Christians have been causing trouble all over the world. Now, it is true that um, as these Paul and Silas have gone around telling people about Jesus, that it's caused confrontation. But in this passage, who's causing the trouble? Is it Paul and Silas? No, it's the dudes going to the marketplace, getting a renter mob and with trench coats probably, and, like, and causing a riot in the city. So the troublemakers are actually the people who are causing the opposition, not the Christians in this case, starting a riot. And notice as well, they get accused of high treason. 
So they get accused of telling everyone that Caesar's not the king, this guy Jesus is the king instead. Now, I want to say that's at best a half-truth. So the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the king of all kings, in fact, but not in a way that's trying to politically undermine the fact that, like, Jesus has died and risen and he's, he's God. They're not saying that he's taken Caesar's place as the ruler of the Roman Empire, They're not trying to undermine Caesar. In fact, we know what Paul's teaching was about the leaders of the time because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that we're to submit to our leaders and follow them, even if they're tyrants like Caesar. So they're being accused of undermining Caesar. And what we need to appreciate is that's a big deal. In Australia, right, we do all sorts of rubbish to our prime ministers. We like bag them out and tease them for wearing Speedos. Someone threw a shoe at Julia Gillard a few years ago. Anyone remember that? That was crazy, right? We do that kind of stuff and it just makes the news and everyone has a laugh. If you do that to Caesar, you're dead. It's over, right? Being accused of treason against Caesar is the equivalent of being accused, what's worse than being accused of murder or rape. You go into jail or you're getting executed for it. So we need to appreciate (laughs) the seriousness of what's been accused of these guys, that they're undermining Caesar. They want these guys gone. Excuse me. Um, and I want to say that this sort of um, opposition that comes with really no real grounds is actually a pretty common thing today as well. It's been a part of the church's history for as long as there's been a church. I don't know if you guys know about this. You probably would have heard about it. You guys hear about those three Christian books that were banned in all New South Wales state schools a few months ago? Who heard about this? A few of you, yeah. So, A Sneaking Suspicion, a book called You by Michael Jensen, and another book by that lady who came to fat who freaked everyone's parents out called Patricia Weeracoon, right? Um, There's three books, and they're just about Christian stuff. There's nothing sinister about them. It's just like, here's what Christianity is, or here's what the Bible says about sex. Like, nothing crazy, right? But this lobby group managed to get these books banned from all of our New South Wales state schools, and all the syllabuses attached to them for teaching Scripture in schools was also banned because they just trumped up all this stuff. They said it was um, homophobic, just like all this kind of radicalization stuff, just all these crazy accusations. Got the books banned from the schools and all these scripture teachers like, how am I supposed to teach in scripture now? And then after they actually went back and looked at the books, they were like, oh, these books are fine. Okay, you can have them back now. And so this kind of stuff happens. Uh, lunchtime Christian groups, we've got these groups called Flipside. Who's been to Flipside, right? Yeah, lots of, all of you, hopefully. That's right. Not, not well, Some of you don't go to the schools, but like Terrigal, Erina, Henry Kendall, one out on the peninsula, and there's also one at Gosford. Uh, we have these groups going all week, uh, once a week, all the time, right? Flipside's awesome. A few months ago, something happened in Sydney where an Islamic lunchtime group in Sydney was found to be doing some crazy stuff where they were radicalising students and trying to get them to go overseas and all this kind of stuff. So that was a thing that happened in Sydney, and that was real, right? Because of that, All this suspicion has now been cast on lunchtime Christian groups right across New South Wales and Australia. And so there's all this kind of crazy policies and all that kind of stuff that's come in from the government. It's not your principal's fault, so don't get angry at your school, right? But this has all come in from the state government that now there's all these restrictions on our Christian lunchtime groups as if we're in danger of radicalising you guys and chucking you on a plane to go overseas and fight in a terrorist war or something. Like, it's just so far from anything to do with a lunchtime Christian group. It's not funny, Right. But all this stuff has now come home to us. And so we've got to have teachers at our lunchtime Christian groups and you need to have a signed permission slip to now attend Flipside and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, All on what's basically wrong assumptions or false grounds about Christianity. 
So this stuff's real for us today. Um, and so, guys, I want to say, as we read through Acts, I want us to realise <laughs> uh, that this, the climate that we live in today in Australia shouldn't take us by surprise, because this is what it's always been like. Crazy accusations has just been a part of what it's been like to be a Christian for, since it's existed. Early Christians, like, like right back in the day, right? You know how Christians, um, they take communion, so they drink the, the blood of Jesus and eat the body and the bread and the wine as symbols, right? You heard of this? Yeah. Um, early Christians got accused of being cannibals. They're like, they're eating flesh and blood. And they're like, no, no, it's a symbol, everyone. It's okay, we're just eating wine and bread. They also got accused of being incestuous because they called each other brothers and sisters. And everyone's like, they're married each other. It's not true, right? So this kind of stuff happens, right? And so I want to say, pray for Scripture, pray for Flipside. And guys, if you go to Terrigal or Gosford or Henry Kendall or Erinor, um, then don't let this stuff kill Flipside in your school actually really important now more than ever that you guys get behind Flipside if you go to one of those schools. So do the very hard thing of getting your parents to sign a permission slip that says you're allowed to go to a very dangerous lunchtime Christian group where you might get radicalised by some... You're not going to write it. Get them to sign a permission slip. It's worth talking to your friends about it, telling them to bring a permission slip as well and all this kind of junk so that we can just do Flipside and keep this ministry going. Flipside's been an epic thing over the years and so it's worth it. And so support it yourself and get into it. But secondly, I want you guys to notice in this passage, back in the passage, the incredible lengths that these guys go to to actually oppose the message. Did you see what they do? If you notice at the end of the first section in Thessalonica, um, it kind of wraps up. Jason has to post bond and he gets let go and Paul and Silas escape from the city of Thessalonica. Next section... They're in a place called Berea. And in verse 12, he's telling people about Jesus again, and it's all going pretty good. People are becoming Christians. Look at what happens in verse 13, because it's nuts. Look at verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds. They found the trench coat people in town, got them going, stirring them up. And so they start another rent-a-mob there in Berea, and they start stirring them up against the Christians there. And in, verse, in the next few verses, the believers, the Christians there, don't want to kind of have a repeat of what happened in Thessalonica, and so they send them away quickly and they escape to the next place, and Paul ends up in Athens. But these guys from Thessalonica, they're minding their own business, kind of, and Paul's in Berea now, and they're like, what? He's in the next city? Let's get him. And so they move there, and they start the rent-a-mob, and they do it all over again. It's just... Crazy. These guys have gone to an incredible effort to oppose this message about Jesus. It's a big deal. Now, there's something pretty hectic going on, or at least was going on not long ago, in Bendigo. Has anyone heard about what's been going on in Bendigo? None of you are old enough to read newspapers, sorry. Well, not old enough, just, I don't know. I don't know what the phrase is. No one reads newspapers. That's for people my age who have no hair. All right, there's this thing going on in Bendigo, right? <clears throat> there's this controversy because there's a, proposed, um, there's a proposal to build an Islamic mosque in this country town, Bendigo. Now, I'm not trying to make a comment about whether you should build a mosque or not. That's another thing, right? But here's what's going on in Bendigo. Most of the people in Bendigo just don't care one way or another if you have a mosque there, but the town has been overrun with protesters. And so all these protesters, two hours away in Melbourne, right, have got together and like, you're not going to get a mosque in Bendigo? And so they've driven from Melbourne all the way to Bendigo to protest the building of a small mosque in a country town. And now you've got this town in Bendigo overrun with like these people who 
hate Islamic people driving around in utes draped with Australian flags, blaring waltzing Matilda out the window and all this kind of stuff. And so the town's just gone crazy. They're threatening Islamic people who live in the town and all this kind of stuff all over a proposed mosque. Here's the even weirder bit. There's a second counter-protest of people also from Melbourne who've driven all the way to Bendigo as well and they're camping out there for weeks on end to support the building of a mosque in Bendigo. So you've got the anti-mosque people and the pro-mosque people and the rest of the town of Bendigo is sitting there going, I don't really care. And there's these guys just having this crazy clash with each other and going for it. I think I had a picture somewhere. Have you got it there? Have you seen it? There it is. Yeah, like all this, this is all going on in Bendigo, all from people who are out of town just causing a fuss about something that really doesn't even matter to them. That's what's going on here in Berea. (laughs) These guys are so opposed to the gospel that they're willing to go out of their way to travel quite a distance to this town down the road to cause trouble for Paul and this message about Jesus there. This isn't just like a... I could take or leave Christianity kind of thing. This is a, we're opposed to this thing. And so I want to say, guys, that there's a season coming in Australia, if it hasn't come already, where this sort of opposition to the message about Jesus is um, it's going to become more and more real for Christians today. <clears throat> I think more and more the, the message about Jesus and the values of what the things the Bible says is actually becoming more and more countercultural. To the, to the world that we live in, in particularly here in Australia. And so ideas like there's only one way to be saved and it's through Jesus or the Bible's view of marriage and things like that are just going to draw more and more attention. And it might be that as you hear me say those things tonight, you might be like, yeah, darn right, I'm getting my attention because I don't agree with it. It could be that's you tonight. And so people are going to go out of their way to oppose this message about Jesus. And so sometimes it's going to be kind of groundless stuff that's, you know, a false accusation or just a complete misunderstanding about what Christianity is about. But other times it's going to be a real clash with just the truth of of the Bible and the gospel. I reckon Australia has changed so much in the last 15 years. So I was a teenager roughly 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, right? And I reckon it is so different to be a teenager now than it was for me 10, 15 years ago. And it's because of how far culture is shifting away from what the Bible says about life. And the impression I get is it's getting harder and harder to live as a Christian, now as a teenager or anyway. I reckon you guys probably get what I'm saying. If you go to a school somewhere, whether it's a Christian school or not, I reckon you guys know what I'm talking about. And so guys, my prayer for you is that you guys would stick it out as Christians. If you're already a Christian, my prayer is that you'd stick it out that you'd keep going even when it's hard. Because I reckon there's two big temptations that you'll face in the next however many years God gives you. In the culture that we live in, in the climate that we live in, and I don't mean the temperature, right? Like as in what's going on in Australia, there's two big temptations. One temptation will just be to just give up because it'll just be hard and you'll say, I don't like being different, and so you might just give up. The other temptation, though, will be to soften what the Bible says, to kind of water it down a little bit, compromise on some of the truths that the Bible says and make it clash less with the culture around you. There's your temptation. Give up altogether or make it not as hectic sounding so that people like you more. So brothers and sisters, I want to say you guys, (laughs) um, the future of Christianity in Australia 
is actually in your hands. A lot of the Christians who are older are going to get older and eventually die and what Christianity is in Australia is actually going to be a product of of you guys and your generation. And so how you live, the the compromises you make or don't make about the gospel will actually shape Christianity in Australia for the rest of its existence. It only takes one generation for Christianity to die in any one place. And so guys, expect opposition. Expect that it's going to be hard and don't let it stop you. I can sometimes just being prepared for something to be hard actually is what you need to be prepared for it. Recognise ahead of time, this is going to be hard. That'll get you through it. Um, I think I said this like two weeks ago, but imagine like turning up for a walk in the park with your mate and you get there and they're like, guess what, surprise, we're going on a marathon. You'd be like, oh, I'm going to die. That's terrible. And you're just not ready for it. But if you're told we're going on a marathon and you train and you get ready and expect it to be hard, then you arrive and you'll probably live through a marathon. Maybe not me, but most of you would, right? And so... the gospel will bring opposition. And so be ready for it. Know that it's coming. But there's a whole bunch of kind of heavy stuff, a bunch of negative stuff there. But here's the second big thing I want us to notice in this passage. And it's, it's wonderful. It's awesome. And here it is. The gospel actually saves people. Actually saves people. This is something that I reckon that we all, if you're a Christian, you probably know that the good news about Jesus saves people, right? But... I wonder how often we actually believe that to be the case, or at least live as if that was the case. But right here in this passage, it's so clear. The gospel actually saves people. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. As was his custom, Paul went in the synagogue, like a Jewish church, and was with them on three Sabbaths, uh, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, proclaimed him as the Messiah, And then verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Paul doesn't do anything magical in these verses. He just turns up and he just talks about Jesus from the Bible. He's just got his Bible, he's got the Old Testament scriptures out and he's, he's talking about it and he's saying, do you notice all the words there? It says that he's proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That word proving is the same as kind of It's basically the word of placing beside. So what he's doing is he's got the Old Testament Bible, which he would have had, and he's got the person of Jesus, which he's describing to them, and he's saying, Jesus, all the things the Old Testament says about Jesus. Jesus, what the Old Testament says. Isaiah 53, Psalm 2. Jesus, do you get it? Side by side. You can see that Jesus is the Messiah, and so he's just showing them from the Bible who Jesus is. So guys, I want to say that as a quick aside... This model for telling people about, how, about Jesus, showing them from the Bible, I reckon is a fantastic model for how to teach people about Jesus. It's probably the only way, really, to do evangelism. Because it's not clever arguments or excellent answers to questions or being super smart or whatever that helps people to become Christians. It's actually showing them what the Bible says about Jesus. Because God's Word is the power for salvation for everyone who believes. And so, guys, if we can just have a semi-coherent conversation with someone where we point them to what the Bible says about Jesus, we've done our job, and it's God's job to do the rest and save them through His powerful Word. And in verse 4, the result is that many people are saved. Now, 
I reckon as we read this account in Thessalonica, the, the kind of obvious thing is all this opposition to the gospel. And it's easy to let that opposition to the gospel overshadow the incredible thing that's, that God is doing here in this city. You kind of breeze right past verse 4 and then you're like, uh-oh, trench crude people have come kind of thing. But it's a big deal. Like A church gets formed out of what Paul's done here in verse 4. This is the same church that Paul writes two letters to in the New Testament. You can flick over in your Bibles and see 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. That's these guys. A church is getting born here, full of Christians that Paul praises for being faithful, steadfast Christians who follow Jesus, who are generous with their money, who stand up under opposition. Can't imagine what that opposition might have been like. Maybe you can from these verses. This is a church in the making because Paul is showing people who Jesus is from the Scriptures. God saves people through this message. Same thing happens in Berea. Have a look at Berea, verses 11 and 12. It says, Now the Bereans and the Jews were, sorry, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them were believed. Same thing. And notice that Luke here, as he writes this, is careful to praise the way the Bereans respond and the way they receive the message. He's like, these are good guys because they had their Bibles out and they listened eagerly and they were keen for the message, but they listened to see if what Paul was saying was true. They've got their Bibles and they're like, oh yeah, I think I see what Paul's saying there. That's good. And so they tested it with their Bibles. Now, I was going to have a little bit of a rant about sitting in talks with your Bibles open and reading them and stuff and following along. But I was looking around as we were reading the Bible and everyone had Bibles. And I was like, yes, we've won again for another year. Because I remember at FAT, I had this big rant where I was like, stop playing with your phones, get out real Bibles and use them. Because real Bibles don't have like Facebook notifications and Snapchats appear on the pages, right? So it's a lot less distracting. You've all got them. Everyone hold your Bibles up. He's like, yay, I can see a lot of them. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's better in the front, the keen beans, and then it gets sloppy up the back. But generally, it's really good. And so guys, I want to say, keep bringing your Bibles, have an open, and follow along as we're looking at it together. I, I, sometimes I'm tempted to like just f- tell a few lies as I like do my sermon, just to see if I can teach us a bit of a lesson. Be like, yes, Jesus is not God, and just see if it kind of, you know, see what happens. But anyway, yeah, yeah someone's listening, well done. Who gave me the heresy yell? Was that Max? Good on you, Max. Good on you. Yeah. So the point is, guys, have your Bibles open. Follow along because I'm not perfect and neither is any other preacher. I'm a long way from perfect, right? But no one who gets up here is the definitive expert on this stuff. And so you need to test and weigh and listen with your Bibles open. But here's the big thing. Here's the big thing I want you guys to notice. People hear this message about Jesus and they respond and they're saved. It's the best thing in the world. It's so good. I think that for me, I actually go through life so often assuming that people won't respond to this message about Jesus or assuming that they won't like it. That's my default is I assume people are just going to be offended by it. Um, um, and so it, makes, it tempts me to make this message about Jesus sound softer and nicer or maybe just often just stay quiet altogether. That's, what, that's my kind of default. Um, there's a thing called Summerfest that some of you guys are going to be leading on um, in a little while in January. But I've been doing that for like more than 10 years. And one thing you do at Summerfest is you go out in the community and you meet people, knock on doors and kind of have friendly chats about Jesus. Not crazy, scary Jehovah's Witness chats, but just friendly ones, right? Um, but I've been doing that for like more than 10 years. I'm scared every single time I go out. 
And as I go out doing that, I assume that people won't like this message and that they won't respond and that God won't save people. And every year God surprises me by it. And because God is a God who's in the business of saving people and he does it by his powerful word. And so the message about Jesus actually saves people. Um, I've got a mate, uh, Adrian Haynes. I don't know if any of you guys know him. But I reckon I've seen Adrian cry at more weddings and birthdays than anyone else I know, right? Okay, he's just, he's a tough looking guy. He's a big sook at weddings and birthdays, right? And the reason he's always crying is because Adrian uh, didn't grow up in a Christian family. He became a Christian when he was a teenager. And he became a Christian through his mate Simon, who invited him along to Eva Youth years ago. Uh, And so that's how he became a Christian. And now every time there's a wedding or a birthday where one of them's given a speech or something like that, Adrian's always in tears because he's just so grateful for this friend Simon who loved him enough to tell him about Jesus and bring him along so he could hear about Jesus in the Scriptures. He's just so full of joy and gratitude that Simon cared enough about him that he'd share the gospel with him. Now, how many of you guys have become Christians, you know, in your life. Probably a lot of you, I imagine, right? Um, When you heard the good news about Jesus and became a Christian, were you like angry? Were you just like furious at the person who told you? Were you just like, damn it, why are you telling me this stuff? I'm so angry. No, you weren't. You were full of joy. You were grateful that someone loved you enough to tell you about something that would eternally change your life into the future. It's the best message in the world. This isn't some terrible burden that we're trying to share with people, like trying to sell them a dodgy used car or something like that, and you're like, I hope they bought it. (laughs) No, it's it's the best news in the world. (laughs) It's the best thing you could ever share with someone. And sometimes the gospel will bring opposition. People won't like it, that's clear. But more often than we expect, people will respond to it, uh, and they'll love this message, and they'll be saved by it, because they're the words of eternal life. And so, guys... Be loving enough to share this message with people. Uh, God is doing an amazing thing among us here at Eva Youth. I've I've not really ever seen a night like we had last Friday night at Youth Group. It was epic. It was really, really cool. Um, I've heard of 81 people this year who've said that they've become Christians through Fat and Eva Youth. That's a fantastic thing that God has been graciously doing among us as he's seen his word change people's lives. Um, And so, guys, I want to suggest... Um, take a risk. <laughs> Start talking about Jesus. It's not the craziest thing in the world to do. It is hard, uh, but it's worth it. Share this news with people. Um, it, it's an epic thing. The worst case is that your friend might think you're a little bit weird. But that's all right, because you are a Christian, so you probably are weird anyway, and that's all right. And so take a risk. The best thing has happened is that someone might hear the news of the gospel, which will save them for eternity. Now, God's a powerful God in the business of saving people. And so, take a risk. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this incredible message about Jesus. Thank you that you came into our world as a man and that you went to the cross and you took our sin in our place. Thank you that by Jesus' death and resurrection we're saved. And Father, we pray that we'd be loving enough to the people around us to care about them, to tell them about this Jesus. Amen.